I'll just go ahead and open us up in prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we just come before you today, and we just want to thank you so much for this great privilege of being able to gather together in your name. I just pray as we just go through this lesson today, you just help keep the different concerns of the world outside so we can focus on your truth. And I just pray that you just help us come to a biblical understanding of the devil and his role in our sin. In the name of your son Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay. The first thing before we dive into this lesson that I really have to stress is this is a very brief overview of the topic. The topic of spiritual warfare and the, the role the devil plays in our sin is something we can do a whole conference on itself. And many of the different subpoints I have could be a whole breakout session by itself. Um, so I would refer you to the end of my notes, which start on page 41. I do some recommended resources, and all of those books are very excellent things for you to dive into if you want to learn more about the topic. But to start off, when you think about spiritual warfare, what do you think? Do you think about things like casting out demons, finding the devil, reclaiming the territory, or the interrogation of demons? Or do you think about a daily battle with sin, lying, stealing, your language, lusting? What the Bible actually says about spiritual warfare may surprise you. Because we've been so influenced by outside things that we don't let the Bible be our primary guide. We hope to clear that up today. Uh, Stephen Lawson says the Christian life is not a playground, but a battlefield of spiritual warfare. So as Christians, we are in battle against sin and the devil. We need to heed the warning that God gave Cain in Genesis 4-7 that said sin is crouching at, at the door and its desires to roll over you. We also need to heed the warning that Peter gave in 1 Peter 5-8 when he said the devil prowls around like a roll lying, looking for someone to devour. But far too often, what we believe about spiritual warfare and the devil is based upon books, literature, superstition, false religions, and anecdotal stories instead of the Word of God. A lot of the things that we talk about within the Christian circles about spiritual warfare is actually paganism that we imported into Christianity. We seem to get our idea of what spiritual warfare is from Frank Peretti instead of the Bible. If you know the book, This Present Darkness, has one of the biggest influences on this mindset we have on spiritual warfare, but most of it was fiction, and as sadly though, its influence has been devastating within so many churches, and we'll dive into that as we go on. But we have to try to maintain a balance in our view, because as Christians, you ever notice we like to go into ditches? We either, we go into one ditch, then we overcorrect and fall into the other ditch. We're not very good at maintaining that line in the middle. One side overemphasizes the role, the role of the devil. They see a demon behind every sin and behind every bush, every bad thought. They blame it on the demon of anger, the demon of lust. You see this very commonly in your Pentecostal and charismatic churches, but it was imported within Baptist churches through the men like Bill Gothard. And we'll dive into that a little bit later as we go on as well. But then there's the opposite extreme end, which... There's basically atheism when it comes to the devil. We give him lip service that we believe that he exists, but we live like he doesn't. And this is more common in the circles I run in, the Reformed, Baptist, you know, Presbyterian type circles. Both are very dangerous ditches if we're not careful. These wrong views of spiritual warfare will cause people to deny the responsibility for their sins. 
or leave them vulnerable to the schemes of the devil. And going back to those two little extremes we talked about, the one view that says the devil's responsible for everything, what that does, it removes the responsibility for sin away from me and puts it on the demon. You've heard people talk about, oh, he's an angry man because he has the demon of anger. I had someone in a counseling session said, well, our marriage has gone really good, then the devil came and made my husband cheat on me. There was no personal responsibility. It was all put on the blame on the demons or, or a devil. In this, in this extreme view, the, the mission that, as a counselor, you would do is to cast out a demon and not to lead the person to repentance. So the cure for a sin issue is casting out of demons and not repentance. It's, I, I can't spell it for you, but this has got an ecbalistic ministry or a deliverance ministry. The other extreme view is basically you see... The devil is no threat to me. He's defeated. I don't have to worry about him. But the result of that is you can easy pray and you can fall into his traps. Uh, Phil Johnson, he works with Grace to You under uh, John MacArthur, says true spiritual warfare is not mystical. It's rational. It's not about territory. It's about truth. Uh, there's a great book I recommend in the back of your notes, Got Truth or Territory. If you only get one of those books, I'd suggest that one. Um, the author, Jim Osmond, defines spiritual warfare as the bold proclamation of truth of the gospel to sinners. The gospel and the gospel alone is powerful in God unto salvation. The gospel destroys the anti-God fortresses composed of Satan's lies. It delivers them from the kingdom of darkness into the do dominion of Satan. So if we're not very careful we lose the focus on the gospel when it comes to spiritual warfare. And this is now point six, if you're still following along in your notes. Spiritual warfare is really about sanctification. And sanctification, a brief definition, is that lifelong process where through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're made to be more like Christ in everything that we do, think, and desire. But we have to really recognize one thing about sanctification. It is synergistic, which means it's us working in cooperation with God. Where salvation is called monogistic, which means salvation is all of God. He does everything in our salvation. With sanctification, it's us working with the Holy Spirit. And number seven, biblical counselors serve on the front lines of spiritual warfare. How many of you guys are counselors? Okay, how many of you guys are pastors? And if you talk to anyone who's a counselor or pastor, they can tell you about when they do the pastoral counseling or in a session, you see true spiritual warfare going on. They understand what it's like to meet with somebody, then walk out of the room feeling you just won 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. But it's not just a warfare that biblical counselors and pastors are in. We're in it every day for our own lives and the lives of those around us for your loved ones, for your family, for your co-workers. We're in that constant battle. And we have to maintain the biblical perspective if we're going to win this war, which we know in the end we do, because Satan is a defeated enemy. But we have three foes or enemies. We're in a holy war with all three of them. The first one is the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 
says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does not, I'm sorry, but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. What this is talking about is the system of thinking, a world view, the way of life that leaves no room for God. We also fight against our flesh. We see this in Romans 8, 1 through 17. And this is talking about our sin nature, the battle we have every day with sin. And the last one, what we're going to focus on quite a bit today, is the devil is that third enemy. Um, one thing before we kick into the rest of this lecture, there's spiritual warfare, that's a typo, it should be animistic, A-N-I-M-I-S-T-I-C, cultures. These are cultures where there's very heavy influence on the mystical side of life, with little to no gospel penetration. These are, if you go to parts of Haiti, that's almost all voodoo. You go to some tribes in Africa that's had no gospel penetration. You might see some very bizarre presentations of spiritual warfare. That's the norm in that culture. It's not the norm here. That's way out of scope of this class. We can maybe do it future sessions down the road. But we will be addressing spiritual warfare within a culture like ours. So moving on is, who is the devil? It's often said that one of the first commandments of battle is to know your enemy. So we have to make sure we have an understanding of who is the devil. We have to make sure that understanding is based upon the Bible itself. Um, throughout this, when you flip through your Bible, you see him referred to in so many different ways. Satan, Lucifer, the accuser, the slanderer, the adversary, Apollyon, Belizebub, Bilal, the dragon, the serpent, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, and the, the evil one, and the tempter. If you break it down, Satan actually just means the one who resists, or the accuser. Um, Joel Beakey, in his book, uh, Fighting Satan, which we do have in the bookstore, did a study, and he broke down, from the King James Version, how often the, the term Satan is used. He showed that it was used 19 times in the Old Testament, but 14 of those were found in Job 1 and 2 alone. Other times you see I have in your notes, 1 Chronicles, Psalm, and Zechariah. In the New Testament, you see Satan is used 34 times, and the devil is used 60 times, but you see 40 of those times were in the Gospels. The other thing we have to really understand is the devil... Angels and demons are all created beings. Within some Pentecostal circles, you see the idea that the devil and angels are just forces or mystical abilities or just a symbol of evil that can take over us. They, they take, take away their personhood. But the other thing we have to remember is the devil and his demons are fallen angels. Uh, this is referenced in Revelation 12.9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of the old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then we know the devil is the god, little g, of all false religions. 
Islam, Mormonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, even the Roman Catholic Church are all tools of Satan. Because they deny the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is repentance and faith through Christ and Christ alone. And we won't read it today, but if you've seen your notes, Ezekiel 28, 12-19. Um, it chronicles what the devil is like before he fell and his fall. When you look at the overview of Ezekiel 28, it is addressed to the king of Tyre. But the beginning in verse 12, it's clear it can't be addressing just a mere man. It talks about the fall of Satan, refers to him as a cherub. And this passage itself serves two purposes. It shows us Satan himself and his fall, but it also shows us the power behind the king, which is Satan himself. So it's one of those Old Testament passages that has two meanings. If you haven't read through that chapter of Ezekiel, I'd recommend doing it tonight, and you'll be kind of surprised at what's all in there about the devil and things along those lines. But one thing we have to be careful of, too, when it comes to the devil, is that we don't take the attributes of God and put it on the devil, which so often we do when it comes to spiritual warfare. The first one is the devil is not omnipresent, which just means that God is everywhere. Only God has his ability. Because we can sometimes think, well, the devil's everywhere tempting everyone at one time. He can't be. Often that could be a demon causing some temptation. But it's not the devil who's everywhere tempting and influencing everybody all the time. We know the devil is not omnipotent. Or, I'm sorry, omnipotent. God is all-powerful, and he can do anything according to his character. The devil is not. The devil is not all-powerful. But so often we give him these abilities to make him so. And the devil is not omniscient. What that means is knows all things. We know that God knows all things and there's nothing he does not know. (coughs) But the devil does not contain all knowledge. We also know the devil is not sovereign. Sovereignty is God's kingly supreme rule, control, and legal authority over everything. But when you look through scripture, we see the devil is still subservient to God. One thing... The devil and demons, and how we use the language today, we kind of mix them up sometimes. So we say, well, the devil did something, it could could be one of his demons, or vice versa. So often we just take the works of a demon and attribute it to the devil, but they're working for the same goal. But the most important thing to remember is the devil is a powerful enemy that seeks to destroy you, but he is a defeated enemy. He was defeated at the cross. He was bound from deceiving the nations. And he's basically living on borrowed time, if you just want to phrase it that way. We know that Jesus already won the battle. And that's where, in your counseling, if you're doing it in a sense within the church, or you're just counseling your friend, or you're struggling with a sin issue, just remember, Jesus already won that battle for you and freed you from your sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. And we also know the devil cannot do anything to you without the permission of God. We saw this, we see this in Job 1. But we also saw this in the New Testament. In Luke 22, 31-32, uh, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, 
when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I've seen some people take this verse and just focus on demand it. See, the devil makes demands of God. But what's the very next word? Permission. The devil needs, he cannot do anything without the permission or God allowing it. So how does the devil actually work today? Or sometimes it's referred to as the schemes of the devil. Is number one, we have to know that the devil cannot make you sin. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we cannot stress this point enough. The devil cannot make you sin. And if you look throughout the scripture, the apostles did not cast out the demons for sin-related issues. You didn't see them walk up to someone and cast out a demon of anger, the demon of lust. Okay. And the other thing is, you and I would both still fight against sin, even if the devil ceased to exist today. Because where does sin come from? Our hearts. Okay. So much of spiritual warfare is a struggle against our own sinful heart. That should be Matthew 15, 19. In your notes. Yeah. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. So we see this. Sin starts with us. So what the devil can do is use what's already in us. He's not putting the desires in us, but he's using what's already coming from inside us. And that's very important for us to remember. Then a lot of people talk about Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. To really exegete this verse, you really need a whole hour to itself, because it's such a complex verse. But the flesh and blood, according to Brian Borgman, he's a great biblical counselor and a pastor, says Paul is using the first century Jewish way of saying that the conflict is not with mere human beings. They may be used as weapons, but they are not the ultimate weapon. What this verse is basically teaching us is to show us that we're in a spiritual battle, and it's a rationale for putting on the armor of God. And now as we look at the schemes of the devil, it's not an all-inclusive list, and this is some of the main points. We have to be very careful here as well. The Bible is silent on how the devil carries out most of these. Since the Bible does not explain how he does these, we should not speculate how he does, because that gets us into trouble. But we see the devil attacks or discredits the word of God. He tries to make you doubt the truth of the scriptures. He tries to twist God's word to make you think it means something it doesn't. He tries to distract you when you're trying to read it. And he wants you to put more influence on science, kind of like we talked about during the first session today. Once he tries to make you say the Bible is less credible than what the scientists are telling me today. They try to use liberal theologians who try to say, well, the Bible is a good paraphrase. It's not all true. No, we know the Bible is inerrant. It has no errors. It's infallible. It's incapable of error. And it's sufficient for life and godliness. While we fought that battle within the Baptist movements for inerrancy and infallibility, we're losing on sufficiency. And that's part of the devil's schemes, to make us doubt that the Bible is useful today. 
to make us count on we need something else besides the Bible. And this goes way back to the garden. Uh, in Genesis, what did the serpent tell Eve? Did God really say? We see this temptation and this attack in the very beginning of the Bible, and it's still being used today. We know the devil misrepresents God. He tries to make you doubt God's character. When something's not gone right in your life, when you desire something good and right, and it's not happening, or something a tragedy happens, your child dies, you lose your job. The thought, the devil can make you start thinking, how could a loving God, or if God was good, how could He? That's the schemes of the devil to make you doubt the character of God. The devil accuses you. He tries to make you doubt your salvation and destroy your assurance. Goes, you know, if you were really a Christian, would you do X, Y, or Z? A good Christian wouldn't do what you just did. But we have to remember, we're Christians, but we still sin. But what does First John two one tell tells us? That we have an app when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father through Christ Jesus. He's paid that punishment for us on the cross already. And we have his righteousness upon ourselves. And that's where we can go back to scripture during these times. Then the devil tempts you to sin. The key word being tempts you to sin. He cannot make you sin. He cannot cause you to sin. He tempts you to sin. Uh, Thomas Brooks in his masterpiece, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he said, to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup, to hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow upon the soul by yielding to sin. And by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of the sin. This is another one of those books, if you put on the list of what a book every Christian should read. This is one of those Puritan works I highly recommend. What he does, he takes what he calls a scheme of the devil. And then he'll give you 5, 10, 12 different remedies for it. And it's a phenomenal book. We know the devil tries to make you ineffective in your ministry. He cannot steal your salvation, but yielding to him can destroy your ministry. Can bring shame to the name of God. He can make you so busy with worldly things that you give into that temptation to busy yourself that you're no longer serving God the best you can. Then the devil uses unsaved and saved friends against you. Just like he can tempt us to sin and our sins affect others, same thing with our friends. Your saved and unsaved friends can be used to tempt you to do things you shouldn't do, to watch things you shouldn't watch. They can distract you. They can discourage you. They can build up your pride. And that's, pride is so dangerous as a Christian. I'm one of those, I know there's a big debate, is it rebelling your pride when it comes to the root of all sins? I fall into the pride side. But I, I won't split a church over that. But just pride just puffs us up, makes us think we're more important than God. And that we can do things on our own. And that can lead us to a whole bunch of other sin. And just so much more along those lines. Then we see the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. We saw this in uh, 2 Corinthians 11.14. No wonder... For even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. The devil and his demons disguise themselves as messengers of truth. They dress up the lie with enough truth that it seems right. 
Because lies that are so obvious aren't really dangerous, are they? Because we see those coming a mile away. It's the one where they're all dressed up that's 98% where they're true. But that little bit of poison there is what's so dangerous. And it's interesting, if you look at a lot of false religions, what do you see at the very beginning? Angels. Mormonism. Moroni, right? The angel came and brought him to Joseph Smith. What about Islam? I believe it was Gabriel in the cave. Uh, and even if you look at the Catholic Church, the apparitions of Mary. What is she's often described as? A being of light? And you look at like Fatima and those other things. Who is she always pointing to in those things when she appears? To herself instead of Christ. So that's one thing we have to be very careful of. This great, these angel, this idea of Satan appearing as an angel of light can bring things that seem really true and distract us that way. We've also seen it's been used to start some of these false religions that lead many people astray. But there are many wrong ways that we can fight against sin and the devil. Many of these weapons worked as we go through these. You can see that many of these go hand in hand and work together. However, so often we just incorporate bits and pieces into our theology. The first one is casting out demons for sin-related issues. We already said that was an ecopolistic type ministry, or a deliverance ministry. And the idea of casting out demons for sin-related issues is foreign to scriptures. The casting out demons was part of the apostolic ministry of the apostles and their close associates, which is meant to authenticate the message. <coughs> And that leads us to the sub-point A, is can Christians be, be demon-possessed? The answer is no. A lot of people try to make a big difference between demon-possession and demonized. Have you heard people try to do that? When you go back to the real root word, it means the same exact thing. It did both terms denote ownership. But as a Christian, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and an unclean spirit cannot reclaim us since we've been sold for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. Then the question is, can unsaved people be possessed? And the answer with that would be yes. We see this in more of these animistic cultures we talked about. But the key there is not to cast out the demon. The key is to give the gospel. That's how we treat demonic activity like that today, is preach the gospel. Where they need is salvation. They need the Holy Spirit to come in them. And that's not the norm for our culture. The next one is hedges of protection. I think that's a very com common term we all hear today, isn't it? But this is one, hedges of protection. Number two? Yes. Uh, we often hear this in prayer meetings, where someone prays for a hedge of protection around somebody or an event. Often it's just a harmless metaphor for asking God to protect us. If that's what we mean by it, it's okay. But within some circles, they have a big elaborate theology built upon the idea of hedges. Um, some would teach that if I was going to witness to Vicky over here, I would first have to bind the devil, put a hedge, pray for a hedge of protection around her before I could witness to her for that to be effective. That's where we cross the line between a harmless saying to a unbiblical practice. 
So, but if you have a nice older guy in your church who's praised that during a prayer meeting, just saying, God, protect us. Don't go take him outside and yell at him after. We're talking the, when you're building this big complex that unless I pray this hedge, God can't work. That's where it becomes dangerous. Um, but where do we get that from? That's from one verse in Job 1.10 that says, Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Is a hedge mentioned here? Yes, it is. But there's no command for us to pray hedges, no instruction for us to pray hedges. Very closely related is the next point, which is hedges of thorns. How many of you guys have heard of that? Okay. Basically, people use the two terms interchangeably quite often. But this is based upon Hosea 2.6, which is, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. This is actually a judgment upon Israel. That God is telling Israel it's a judgment. So when we misuse this verse, we take what's a judgment upon people and pray to protect us. That's just eisegesis. It's eisegesis to use this as a proof text. So what we have to understand about hedges of protection, hedges of thorn, just to stress, it's a, just a, it's a metaphor just to protect us, no problem. We're praying that it's something we have to pray in order for God to work. That's where the issue comes in. The next one is the binding of Satan. You, can only, you just have to turn on TBN for about 10 minutes and you see this about a dozen times. It's a belief that by binding Satan, his activity is limited, hindered, or prohibited in whatever manner that he is bound. Um, Bill Gothard has said, Before we attempt to reclaim a loved one who has come under Satan's power, we must first bind Satan. Otherwise, he works through that loved one to create a reaction towards every attempt at restoration. The idea that you must first bind Satan before witnessing limits the power of the cross. We're now trying to put something that we have to do, something we have to pray, in order for the cross to be effective. We don't see this practice in Acts, or before Peter stood up to preach, or before Philip talked to the eunuch. You didn't see him anything about binding Satan. Um, but there are three proof texts people use for binding Satan. The first is Matthew 12:29 which is, or how can anyone enter the strong, man, strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. It's true. The strong man in this verse is the devil. But it is an analogy that is used to describe Christ's strength over Satan. What this verse is talking about is Jesus combating the idea that his power came from the devil. We see in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is where hermeneutics plays a big part. Remember, we have to understand the Bible and we read the Bibles. What do the original audience <coughs> take from this? This verse actually has nothing to do with spiritual warfare. It's an old rabbi phrase that deals with having the authority and responsibility to proclaim, on, to proclaim something. This is saying that we have the power to proclaim on earth 
what things in heaven have already been determined to be allowed or forbidden. Is what this phrase, verse is talking about. The third one is Matthew 18, 18. Which is truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the same idea as Matthew 16, 19. However, the application is on church discipline. Not on binding Satan to prohibit his activities. The next one is rebuking Satan. This is a mistaken belief that we have the same power as Jesus does over the devil. The devil has no choice but to obey us when we rebuke him. So some of this belief would say that if you're witnessing somebody and they're just arguing with you, not paying attention, if you rebuke Satan, Satan's got to leave. Or if Satan's tempting somebody, you rebuke him, then he will run away and the temptation will go with him. Yeah. They've seen rebuking Satan as a means of sanctification and a way to resist temptation. Now the next one is called spiritual mapping. How many of you guys ever heard of that one? Okay. This is actually one of the fastest growing this practice is in the, one of the fastest growing groups of Christianity today called the New Apostolic Reformation. Anyone ever hear of them? Everyone hear of the band Jesus Culture? If you have any CDs or your kids have CDs of Jesus Culture, get rid of them. They're tied in with this called the New Apostolic Reformation which teaches that God has restored people with the same authority as the apostles today. And this is where you see a lot of the barking like dogs, a lot of weird manifestations. They claim they have people who go out and routinely raise the dead. They claim they have their youth group who walks through walls, but they've never captured it on a cell phone video. And believe it or not, when you, this is the fastest growing tenet of so-called Christianity in the world today. It's taken your 20-somethings by storm. Um, that's actually a very in-depth issue. But this practice is very common with them. Um, and it actually uses a lot of these different things. It's defined as the practice of engaging in intercessory prayer for different geographical locations to overcome and dislodge the supposed demonic strongholds in those locations. It teaches that there is this big extensive demonic hierarchy over an area. And you must actually overcome, through prayer and repentance, each level. So you have to figure... And they had these demons, they call territorial spirits, each of them must be confronted bound and removed before the gospel can effectively penetrate. So, for Mayfield Heights, we would have to walk around, pray, find out the sins of our ancestors in the area, repent of that, then we'll get into the next point of how they do this. You have, then you have to figure out which devils have different levels and you'll work their way up the chain of command of binding them and rebuking them and removing them to reclaim an area for Christ. But the question is, well, how in the world do they know which devil is like the lieutenant, which one's the captain? It's called the interrogation of demons. It's they, what they would do is, once they find a guy named Joe who's possessed, we'll just say, or even if they're not possessed, they find a demonic, they find out the name of a demon, they bind him. Then once he's bound, they interrogate him. But they were commanding him to tell the truth in the name of Jesus or through the blood of Jesus. And they say that since they said that phrase, the devil cannot, the demon or cannot lie to them. And then they interrogate that demon to try to find out who's in charge, what areas they're in charge of, and so forth. 
and that's how they start. Yeah, or someone who claims to be possessed. Yeah, and it's it's a practice. Some will even go to say, say if Vicky and I are over here and we're going to interrogate this demon or someone who we think is possessed, and we want to talk to each other, not let the demon hear, we should talk in tongues because the demon doesn't understand tongues because it's angelic language. But the problem with that goes back to is what are demons? Fallen angels. Yeah. I know this is funny, but the truth is this type of spiritual mapping, also called strategic level spiritual warfare, is taking the Christian church by storm. You've heard of Bethel Church from uh, Redding, California? It's the pastor's Bill Johnson, not Phil Johnson. He's a good guy. But that's a very popular church. Uh, IHOP, the International House of Prayer, they're highly involved in this. This type of spiritual warfare, things along those lines. And with that, and with all those types of spiritual warfare, we have to be careful because they also teach the use of magic words or verbal incantations. It is a belief that you can claim, possess, and determine the future of events and have victory over sin just by saying special phrases. You know, you might not have victory over something until you claim victory over that in the name of Jesus. Or by the blood of Jesus. Now the next one, if I get going on this, I have to be careful. I can spend three hours going off on this one. Because this one is very destructive. It's the reclaiming of territory. It's a belief that you cannot truly be free unless you reclaim any and all territory that you gave away to the devil or one of your ancestors did. For example, the reason you struggle today is because you played with a Ouija board when you were 13 one time and you've never reclaimed that territory. It's why bad things are happening to you now. Or you looked at a pornographic film when you were 15 one time and now you lost your job. That's the demon that you gave an open coming in through from the pornography from 15 years ago that's so affecting you and your life today. Or your great-great-great-father, grandfather, had sins that hasn't been repented of that's been passed along to you. Um, along with this uh, came a very de destructive teaching that made so many Christian parents who fell under this influence to look at their adoptive children as someone who's influencing them in a wrong way. Like, they adopt a child, then two years later, dad loses his job, or something bad happens. Mm -hmm. This teacher said, well, you don't know what demons you brought in that house with that kid. And since you don't know who his ancestors are, you can't ever repent of that. And it's been a destructive teaching that's destroyed families. Um, in the council ministry, you see people who think their sins today is the result of these generational curses. But we know that's not true, and we'll explain that in a second. Very, very popular still today, Pentecostal circles. Baptist churches because they influence guys like Bill Gothard. It's called Generation Curses. You've ever heard of that? And this is based upon Exodus 20, verse 5. Which says, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But sounds like it is, doesn't it? But this is... You have to know the Hebrew language, and go back to the original languages, and just read the very next verse, because they stop at five. Yeah. It says, but this, and that verse is, but shown the loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a con thing in the Hebrew language called parallelism, where they contrast two actions of God. And we could 
spend an hour executing this couple of verses, but it's a literary device to show that God would rather bless a thousand generations of those who love him than curse three or four generations of those who hate him. And there's a lot more in that we can dig into. We just don't have the time to do so. And the last one is hand-to-hand combat with demons. Some people teach, and if you go to YouTube, you can find videos of people talking about doing this, where they say they can go to the spiritual realm and physically fight demons. And it's almost like a video game where they talk about how they can pull up spiritual axes, shoot the fire of God at them. But people and some churches do believe they partake in that. Okay. So what are the right ways to fight against sin and the devil? Notice the Bible gives us two commands. We are to stand and resist the devil. Ephesians 6, 13-14 Therefore take out the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 8-9 Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a rural lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, known the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Uh, James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice, we're not commanded to do hedges of protection, bind the devil, interrogated demons. We're told to stand and resist, and those go hand in hand. What does it mean to stand against the devil? Only blood-bought believers in Christ can truly stand against the devil. Because we're doing it under Christ's power and not our own. We're being told to stand guard and watch out for temptation. To stand firm on the foundation of Christ and not in the slippery ground of the world. We must stand in Christ's power and not our own. We are to use the means of grace. Bible reading, prayer, worship, fellowship. And we can stand by putting on the armor of God. What does it mean to resist the devil? We are to resist the devil and sin immediately. We are to flee from temptation and not give in. We are to use that way of escape that is promised to us in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you. And we are to stand against the devil by putting on the full armor of God. And the armor of God, some of these summaries is from uh, John MacArthur. Uh, The belt of truth. This is the sincere commitment to fight and win without being hypocrites and self-discipline rooted in the truth of God. We must base everything on the truth of God that is only found in the Bible. The breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is holiness. But we are to put on Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us by his act of obedience. Remember, We are only made righteous because of what Christ has done. His act of obedience is that perfect life he lived that was put on our account. And that's what imputation is. It's when you put something that someone else did and put it on someone else. That is why we're Christians today, is the doctrine of imputation is so important. But we are to stand firm and resist the devil through Christ's righteousness. The gospel of peace, we can stand firm, it's... I'm sorry, the gospel peace footwear from Ephesians 6.15. We can stand firm since we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The shield of faith, Ephesians 6.16. 
True saving faith in Christ is what this is talking about. Not just an intellectual knowledge, but true saving faith in God. And that is how we resist the flaming arrows, which are temptation that is referred to in that verse. <coughs> the helmet of salvation. This is not referring to getting saved. It refers to the assurance we have in our salvation. We can only have full salvation, I'm sorry, full assurance, since we, we can't have full assurance since we are in Christ. The devil wants you to doubt your salvation, discourage you. But what does the book of 1 John tells us? Tells us? The book was written so we may know that we are saved. So we can't have that assurance. The sword of the Spirit. God's word is the only weapon that we need. It's more powerful than the devil. And we see that what did Jesus use when he was tempted in the, de in the desert? Scripture. But what did the devil do? We see how he tried to discredit the word of God? He tried to twist it. Then prayer and supplication. Prayer is a very necessary tool in spiritual warfare. And honestly... Pray for your pastors and pray for your guys who are serving in the counseling ministry. They do need your prayers. Uh, summarize uh, Thomas Bork's book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Well, he has 12 to 15 remedies for each device. He kind of summarized it in the very end very broadly. The first is walk by the rule of scripture. So what he's talking about here is read and study your Bible. Renew your mind in God's truth. Let the Bible be the guide in how you live. Next one is, don't vex or grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we seek out sin instead of righteousness. We're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. Which says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Pursue heavenly wisdom. It's the next point. We talked about that. Do not rely on earthly wisdom. You know, because they're going to start telling us that we don't know if we're a man or a woman. We can't believe in the Bible. You know, they deny the six-day creation. They find the earthly wisdom. Then James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously, without reproach. And it will be given to him. And D is resist Satan's first overture to sin immediately. We don't dabble with sin. We don't test the waters. We don't stick our toes into it, try it out. We don't try to get as close to the line as we can without going over it. As Christians, we're supposed to be running from that line. Strive to be filled with the Spirit. All Christians are indwelt and baptized in the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a command for all Christians to continually live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Remain humble. And we talked about that before. Pride is often the root of all life-dominating sins. It's when we think we're better than God, we're smarter than God, our way is better than God's, we deserve something, we're not getting the attention we need, and that can lead into coveting, adultery, and so many other sins. Uh, maintain a strong and constant watch. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Very carefully, watch what we're watching TV-wise, movies and music. Often, I do a lot of counseling with pornography. 
And often when you do the radical amputation, people think, okay, I'm just going to cut out the pornography. But if they're listening to songs that's filled about sex, what's filling their head? The same thing. Are they, you know, they might cut off the hardcore stuff, but are they watching those rated R movies with sex scenes? So we have to look is guard your heart. Don't put those images in your head because once you see something, you cannot unsee it. Once you hear it, you cannot unhear it. Maintain communion with God is the next point. This is about having a real relationship with Christ. Not something you just do on Sunday and maybe Wednesday evening. This is have communion with Him through your Bible reading. And not just, hey, let me get my one chapter in for today. Study your Bible. You know, prayer, worship, fellowship. Those are all the means that God gave us to get to know Him and to experience Him. Fight Satan in Christ's strength and not your own. We see this in Philippians 4.13. That verse is not about winning a football game or knocking somebody out. In context, it was Paul being able to be content in his imprisonment and the tortures he received. They can also apply that he can give us all things we need to resist temptation and live those godly lives. But we have to recognize we must do it through his power and not our own. Then pray much. And I, I'm sure all the pastors and counselors here will tell you, the one thing they see cons- consistently, if someone has a life-dominating sin, very little to no prayer life. Then do not neglect the role of the church. We, as, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian that forsakes the church. The church is there to help sanctify us, to watch over us, to give us a biblical preaching, teaching, and counseling, to proclaim the gospel, to hold us accountable, and if needed, to slap us against the head with church discipline when we need it. To do the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism. Um, quick overview on the recommended reading, then I'll take a couple questions. We do have Fighting Satan in the bookstore. Great book by Joel Beakey. Um, it's a very short, quick read. Truth or Territory. We don't have a cop any of those in the bookstore. It's a self-published book. So cost-wise, we couldn't do any type of savings on it. But if you only get one, I would do that one. When we broke down all those unbiblical ways that people fight against the devil, long chapters on it, some of the best work you read on generation curses, and why that's not biblical is found in that book. And I cannot, that's truth or territory. I cannot recommend that one highly enough. Just do truth or territory by Jim Osmond. I think you can get it on Amazon. Power Encounters by Dave Powelson is another outstanding book. Written by a biblical counselor. It's out of print. So if you find a copy for under $30, let me know and I'll go buy it. Uh, Precious Remedies, that's another must read. It's a little bit tougher read because it's a Puritan work, but it's far worth your effort. Then Spiritual Warfare, A Balanced Perspective by Borgman and Ventura, another great book. So we have a couple minutes for questions. Yes, sir. You used uh, a word with uh, being demon-possessed. What was the other word you said? Demonized. Demonized. That's different than being oppressed. They're all, people just all use them interchangeably. But some people use demon oppression just to mean that they're being tempted by a demon. Yeah. But that's part of our daily life as a Christian. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I missed a couple of points. Okay. Uh, number points on number two in the introduction. Okay. That is number two? Yeah. Is that far too often? Yeah. Okay, the first blank is books. Okay. Superstition. And stories. You're welcome. Okay. Um, 
Is not one of those. Oh, thank you. Oh, oh, that one. Okay, the devil accuses you. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. So we know that the devil is not omnipresent. Correct. We know that each man is carried away when he's enticed by his own lust. Yeah. How is there any way to know that this is just your own flesh you're fighting, or the devil, or a demon? Okay. Is there any way to know that, and does it matter? Okay. The question was, when you're sinning, is it, are you only coming from you, or are you being tempted by the devil? Is that the question? Yeah. Okay. The answer is, not really. We know that it's starting in you no matter what. It's coming out of your heart. Are you being tempted because something happened that you just happened to see, and you're being tempted from your own heart? Or right now, are you under some a demon trying to tempt you? We might not know. But the answer is... We're going to fight it the same way no matter what, using the same tools. And we have to realize that every day we are in this spiritual battle against our own hearts and the demonic activity, but we fight it the same way by standing and resisting, by using the means of grace. Avoid, you know, radical amputation when we need to to cut off that sin from our lives, being in God's Word, being in that fellowship, and that's how we are to fight. Put on that armor of God and trust in Christ and Christ's righteousness in your life. Is that how? Yeah, one more. Uh, going back to what said here uh, about that temptation, I think the, the distinction is all temptation is the same, whether it comes from a demon yeah. or if it comes from uh, our being tempted by the flesh, because it's the response of the heart uh, to that temptation. Uh, it doesn't take a demon uh, to uh, look at pornography, right. but Satan is very wise, mm-hmm. and he knows where our weaknesses are, and so he can orchestrate it in such a way that those temptations are thrown before us. Yeah, right. Definitely. Yes, sir. So, I've never read one already, but you, you mentioned some, and uh, I guess I'm asking an opinion, how, how common do you think the, the demon battling in the spiritual warfare is on that? On that level, when you read the book, which he did make a sequel, it's all about like with the demon in the corner, and he talks about these spiritual sword fights and things along those lines. I don't think that how he approaches it is a very biblical way, because he makes it seem more of a hand-to-hand combat, per se. And in that book itself, you see things going on in these people's lives with their struggles, but it's trying to give you the behind-the-scenes where these demons are fighting each other. One gets like wounded with a... You know, they're wounding each other, stuff along those lines, where it's very fictionalized. Okay, so I've had people say to me, well, if you went to Haiti or something, you'd yeah. see... Yeah. Oh, you'd see the, the demons possessing yeah. there. Yeah. That, the things with, like, Haiti, that falls in the animistic-type cultures that we talked about, where it's such a heavy satanic influence, where the bizarre stuff is going to be the norm. I've so, been to Haiti, yeah. and I... Even the voodoo uh, drums heard them as we were traveling through Bumpadopolis uh, and that. But one of the big things about Haiti that a lot of people don't realize is the Catholic Church. Uh, many of the shamans for the voodoo 